Okay, thank you very much, uh, Martin. Um, I want to argue in this paper that the, the interactions between friends um, around the wine table resemble political activity. They are not political in themselves, but if we think about these interactions, um, we can shed light on the nature of, pol of, of political activity and what it is like and what it is not uh, like. But I want to do this by presenting a reading of um, the argument that Plato does in the first book of the laws in favor of symposiums, which were sort of the Greek version of uh, male-only friends uh, drinking wine and talking about um, whatever they felt like it, basically. Now, um, I, the, the paper proceeds um, in, in three parts. In the, three, in, in the first part, I will uh, outline the argument that Plato's make, and I, um, and I, want, to, I want to say that he makes an argument in favor of drinking wine uh, uh, in two different dimensions. The first dimension, which we may call the instrumental dimension, is that you know drinking wine is not necessarily with friends, always with friends. Uh, drinking wine is not necessarily a good thing in itself, but it's good for something else, for education, into citizenship, and so on and so forth. So it's a means to another end. The, uh, and part of this instrumental dimension is also the fact that uh, he has to structure the act of wine drinking in a symposium in a particular way by placing what he calls a sober leader in the symposium who, who is the one that is going to manage the symposium in such a way in order to get, uh, in order to get positive results from the symposium. Um, in the, in, another argument that he makes in the, in the first book of the laws is also that drinking wine uh, with friends is a good thing in itself. Uh, and I will present a reading that, in which I will claim that we can focus on the second part of the argument uh, and ignore the first part in order to think about the act of drinking wine with friends uh, in itself. Then in the second part, uh, I will do sort of a quick literature review of Gadamer and uh, Aristotle and so on in order to, to, to say that friendship, politics, and wine drinking um, uh, are, have certain similarities, uh, are, are similar activities. And then in the third part of the paper I will make the same point, but this time following Plato's argument rather than Aristotle's and, and, and Gadamer's. So, first of all, uh, why, why, why this book, The Laws, uh, or, this, or this dialogue? Um, in, in The Laws, basically, we have three participants that are, uh, that are talk talking to each other. We have somebody called the Athenian stranger, who takes a role that you know, is normally reserved for Socrates in these, um, in these dialogues. And then we have two elder uh, respected statesmen, uh, Clenias from Crete and Megillus from, from, from Sparta. Um, when reading the laws, we have to be particularly mindful of the fact um, that the Athenian, who is the philosopher and the other two are the politicians, uh, has to navigate very carefully around the fact that both Kleinias and Megillus are, uh, uh, are very patriotic people and they think very highly of their cities. So the Athenian has to uh, often engage in some kind of vulgar flattery uh, and to make some kind of roundabout arguments in order not to offend them. So we have to uh, keep that in mind when uh, when considering the, the Athenians' arguments. Um, there are three reasons why I look at the laws. First of all, the, the discussion is about the nature of politics in general. So of, of all 
Plato's political dialogue, dialogues. I think this is the one that is easiest to read in the sense that there is uh, sort of uh, a bit less philosophy and metaphysics in it. Secondly, it sets up a very nice contrast between uh, popular <coughs> opinion about the nature of politics and opinion about uh, the opinion of some philosophers about the nature of politics. This contrast um, in ancient Greece, as presented in this dialogue, is actually um, the same as the contrast we notice uh, nowadays between popular understandings of politics and the way some of us understand what politics really is. So, for example, from the beginning of the dialogue, the two, poli the two politicians have a view of politics whose uh, uh, raison d'etre, so to speak, is outside of political activity in itself. They have a very real politique, or what you would say, a very Hobbesian view of human nature, uh, where I quote, by nature an, a, an undeclared war among all exists, and therefore politics for them is a necessary uh, technique uh, or necessary evil uh, in order to guarantee civilized communi community life, because without politics, we do not have police. Without police, we do not have uh, a, a community life and, and living together and, and, and civilized life. But politics is not a sufficient or autonomous activity in itself, and therefore it is not necessarily uh, worth talking about much more than beyond a technique. Uh, how do we organize the police in such a way as to guarantee the, uh, the continuation of peace? The Athenian stranger immediately counters this view. Um, he says that political activity in itself results in increased friendship and harmony, and it can be considered or thought about as an independent activity. Um, if, since he says that political activity is worth thinking about in itself, then the biggest danger to, uh, to politics or to bend around politics is civil strife, or today what we call sort of uh, partisanship or factionalism, as opposed to uh, international warfare, which is the war that motivates the two, the, the two politicians. So from the beginning of the dialogue, he's, he makes a claim that uh, politics is essentially akin to, to friendship insofar as they both lead to happiness. Another reason why looking at the laws is that um, there is sort of an underlying agreement between the Athenian stranger's uh, understanding of politics and uh, what many of us as liberals understand as, as politics nowadays, especially vis-a-vis -vis law, the relationship between politics and law. Um, as the Athenian goes through the tasks of the legislator, he makes no mention of two key themes, the gods and the regime. It follows that the regime that is being talked about in the laws is not ruled by a particular kind of human being, differently than in the Republic, for example, but it is the rule of law. The body politic exists because of law, and its health or happiness depends on following the law. Uh, it's very easy to see how this is kind of similar to uh, sort of uh, our understanding of the Rechtsstaat and, and rule of law as necessary in order to engage. We need law, we need coercion in order to be free, in order, in order to be political. So, what is the nature of political activity according to the according to the Athenian stranger? For him, political activity occurs in the free space demarcated by law, rather than some institutional designation of what politics is, in the sense of the act of voting and, and so on and so forth. In conversation with his Cretan interlocutor, Cleinias, the Athenian comes to the starting conclusions conclusion that the Cretans are the enslaved citizens of a free country. Why is that? Because 
as they are talking about um, the free space uh, that, the, uh, that the law allows the Cretans, in the sense of the hedonistic space, the space which is not regulated by law, uh, the Athenians said that the Cretan lawgiver, the founder of Crete, has not allowed the people to taste, I quote, the greatest sorts of pleasure and play, in a bit to keep them away from corrupting pleasures, but with the outcome that they become soft of spirit whenever life inevitably confronts them with these pleasures. The basic idea is that because law and because the, in Crete they have legislated morality, then um, all the forbidden pleasures, for, for, forbidden by law, um, uh, which the Cretans are not allowed to engage in um, uh, openly, uh, eventually uh, become an obsession for 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 free for for free Cretans just because they are they are illicit pleasures, they are unexplored pleasures. So in a way, they are enslaved to uh, certain kinds of emotions, and these emotions are in conflict with the law with the law of the land. Uh, so therefore, it makes the soul of the citizens and the law incompatible with each other. Um, and he says there is also the increased danger that uh, the, the, the Cretans will end up being ruled by someone who can control these pleasures much better, much better than they can. So uh, the end result of uh, legislating morality for the Athenian stranger is that. Cretans make very good soldiers because they are well trained, but they do not make for very good citizens. In order for freedom to be preserved, the lawgiver must establish institutions where citizens are trained in the mastery of pleasures by being exposed to, to, to the pleasures. In a stroke, the Athenian has established the paradox of politics. Politics requires an arena of freedom from positive law in order to legislate the good laws that sustain it. Or in other words, politics and nomos, which is law in Greek, are not the same thing. They, they, do, not, they do not coincide. Then how do drinking parties come in? The conversation continues back and forth until uh, Megiddus, the Spartan, says, uh, well, this is a sort of good general point you're making, Athenian stranger, but um, nevertheless, Spartan law is, is good because it prohibits drinking parties. And have a look at Athens. Your young people are drinking everywhere. They're 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 drunk in the fields. They're drunk in the city, and it is self-evidently not a good thing. So therefore, here is an example that you, that, that you are wrong. The law should legislate uh, certain moral practices. Um, the Athenians very politely disagrees, very, very politely. Um, according to the Athenians, each drinking party is a social community whose end is safeguarding and increasing friendship. Note that this is the same end uh, as, as politics that he talked about at the very beginning. He says, as long as they are well managed, the symposia, the drinking parties, contribute to the education of the symptoms, increase their goodness and their capacity to perform noble acts. Very weird things for Plato to say. Drinking with friends contributes to education in perfect citizenship or to knowing how to rule and be ruled with justice. Thus, drinking, which in itself leads to immoderate acts and to an inability to rule over oneself, when done among friends, can lead to benevolent and moderate outcomes. In order to ensure that this sort of paradox between the moderation of drinking and the hopefully moderate outcomes of drinking together with friends, in order to ensure that this, is, uh, this paradox is solved in favor of moderation, the Athenian stranger places a sober and sensible leader to supervise all drinking parties. 
He says that the ruler of a symposium must stand above the revelers, as it were. He must check the amount of wine they drink. He must steer the conversation away from topics that may harm communal friendship or individual intellect. And in order to do this, he must have uh, what is often translated as practical wisdom, phronesis. But note that he does not say he must have knowledge in a sort of platonic epistemic sense. Uh, I suggest that, um, but you have to read the paper uh, for that. Uh, I suggest that the Athenian stage uses what he calls a sober despot. Uh, in a similar man manner to Rousseau's immortal uh, legislator in the social contract. Uh, Rousseau, of course, wants to overcome the paradox of politics and constitute the body politic or the social community. Therefore, just as the social contract of Rousseau can be read profitably to understand the nature of the problem of founding a body politic without seeking to solve it through the immortal legislator, book one of the laws, I claim, can be read in order to understand Plato's theory of politics and drinking without seeking to overcome the problem through a sober despot. Why do I say that? Firstly, because the Athenian in the first four books is still talking as a philosopher. So he's very, very much he's in the same role as Rousseau is uh, uh, in, in the social contract, uh, only after book four he becomes a legislator of this sort of imaginary city. So he's in the realm of pure thought. Secondly, the sober despot exhibits exactly the same characteristics as Rousseau's immortal legislator. He must possess sober intelligence that is un unavailable to the intoxicated friends. He must know and understand their souls in order to conduct them through a proper symposium towards more friendship and happiness. And he must position himself apart from the community instead of being a part of it. Like the immortal legislator, the sober despot must exist in order to make the idealized community possible. Um, since the, the Athenian stranger makes it quite clear that what he's talking about is an idealized version of a symposium, a sort of a philosophical idea of a symposium rather than any actual symposium. Um, I think that we can think of the sober despot as a thought device that is meant to overcome uh, Rousseau's paradox. And we have two reasons uh, to remove it in order to inquire on the weaving of friendship, wine, and politics. Firstly, as Claude de Faux points out, although pure thought can, can depart from actual experiences, it is ultimately unaccountable to actual, to actual experiences. Uh, but what it is accountable to is some kind of inner cons uh, consistency. We are not necessarily interested here in sort of on first philosophy, we are interested in making sense of a particular experience, uh, the experience of a symposium. Secondly, Pure thought hits an impasse that Rousseau first formulated as a paradox of founding, in which people like Bonnie Honig and William Connolly have demonstrated to be the paradox of all political action. In actual politics, however, men and women do not founder on this paradox, and therefore do not have to seek solutions to it. They act freely where thought founders. In symposiums, we do not need a sober despot to get us together. If we're friends, we get together in order to enjoy each other's company. This is not, it is, this, this is not a big problem. So, by removing the sober despot, we make two gains in understanding the nature of the symposium in an ideal sense. We clarify the dynamics within the symposium and without the symposium, or between the symposium and the outside world. On the first instance, by removing the despot, we remove the legalistic dimension of vertical rule from the symptotic community. From a community that is regulated by laws emanating from above, you're serious. <laughs> I, I just got rid of the sober despot. <laughs> um, it becomes a spontaneous gathering of friends which come together for no other reason than enjoying each other's friendship. The internal laws of the symposium 
um, as opposed to positive laws, which come from a sober, sober despot, uh, um, arise from the principles of friendship. They resemble more the directives that are accepted rather than imperatives which are imposed. They emerge among friends that are free and equal and are accepted by them in a manner similar to players entering a game. The sanction for breaking these directives of friendship in an actual symposium is not a fine or some such punishment, but banishment from the community of friendship. The horizontal community of the symptoms sustains itself uh, without strength, force, command, or justice of the mind and time type. So it is a little bit like your, your, your presentation. Now, uh, on, on the second part, I will sort of summarize very briefly. Uh, uh, why do I say that the, the nature of symptot symptotic relationships is like the nature of political relationship, relationships? Uh, because I would say I say that drink party is like political activity in the sense that it is relational. It involves joint deliberation. It nurtures practical wisdom in the sense of uh, Farnesis. It is a revelatory of one's real self, and it uses evocative and speculative rather than analytical or deductive language. Um, I, I really do not have time in order to go into into de details, but hopefully you can envision why joint deliberation is part of and is essential in, in a symposium, and why it is part of politics as well. Nevertheless, we can clarify this in in, in the in the Q and A session. Um, Where does wine fit in all of this? So, okay, we, let's say we clarify politics and friendship. Where, where does wine fit? If the essence of politics and friendship is different than instrumental relations, business negotiations, or treating each other in the mode of making, wine helps to transition from a human being who, satis who seeks to satisfy all ones in whatever random order they appear, biological as well as reasonable, to a particular human being that focus mostly on the particularly human ones, speech and reason with fellow human beings. Drinking wine with friends aids in the restitution of friendship by emboldening the conversation. It leads from instrumentalist or descriptive conversation that has knowledge value to evocative conversation that has symbolic value. One is logical, analytical or deductive, while the other is speculative and often uses associations to shed light on the topic. The two are not necessarily compatible. The former appears thin, lacking in substance and argumentative force, while the latter appears ambiguous, vague, and objectively meaningless. But the language of evocation, I claim, is the language of politics as well as friendship. This language does not invent either friendship or politics, but it does recall and make present the solidarities which underwrite both. These solidarities are not universal, but always specific. They bind particular groups of friends or citizens together in ways that are always unique and unrepeatable. So, in contrast to, for example, mind-altering drugs, wine does not attract us to another or transcendental reality, but it reveals this world of friendship, this world of solidarities, or sensus communis, common sense. The expression in vino veritas lies not in some philosophical contemplation of truth, but in the thickening of ground in between friends, a thickening that is helped by the loosened tongue and easier manners that reveal one friend to another. In this sense, uh, wine drunk between friends is the political drug insofar as it puts us in that mode of being that is particular to, uh, to friendship and politics. Um, in terms of part three, um, I, I, I want to come to an end. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I have all this stuff about homosexuality and eros and so on and so forth. In the king's arms. Uh, in, 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 in the king's arms, maybe. Um, okay, I, 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 th I think I'll just leave it here instead of instead of butchering it more. But maybe we can discuss it more during the during the Q and A session. Uh, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we. Oh.